0: If you have your Bibles, we're going to continue in our little series on the parables. We'll be in Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. So if you have your Bibles, go to Luke 16, 19 through 31. Uh, We'll look at this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And I'm going to tell you as we get started, man, it has been an emotional weekend for me. And this will tie into, uh, providentially tie into where we're going to go in this parable today. Uh, But this weekend, from Thursday on, man, it's been an emotional weekend. Thursday and Friday um, was uh, Danielle Tucker and Steve Zepay's wedding. We did the rehearsal uh, on Thursday, had a great time at the rehearsal, and then got to do the rehearsal dinner, which is even more fun than the rehearsal. And we went over to Farm 12, and they had this really good, like, uh, like Mexican uh, buffet, and buffet is even better. And me and uh, my—I got to, like, reconnect with some of my East Coast people, so the moyers sue's family is here and so steve and i man we went after that taco bar and it was good but i appreciate the Moyers because they speak my language and the special dialect that we have over there on the east coast and so we had a good time on thursday uh, at the rehearsal and then friday came the wedding and it was the big day and like it's always a great privilege when you get to stand and be part of somebody's special day but you guys know that lauren and sue I've been, you know, I mean, they're like our best friends. And it's amazing when Lauren says, hey, will you do the wedding for one of my daughters? And I did Chrissy's, and then he asked me to do Danielle's, which is really surprising. Um, But when you get to stand there and be part of that day for someone, all the emotion that surrounds it, and then, you know, all the people, we're all connected with people from some other churches and friends and family. So this is this big reunion and big party. There was dancing at the wedding. Uh, It was Baptist dancing for the most part. (laughs) So, you know, one hip at a time, that's all you're allowed. But it was a good night, and it was really fun. Then yesterday, I had to put the same black suit on that I wore on, set, on Friday for the wedding. I had to put the same black suit on, and I had to go to a funeral. So I went to the funeral for a lady. Her name is Linda Glesner, And uh, Linda, there's a lot of connections there, but Linda was a librarian at Northwest Baptist Seminary, her, uh, her husband, Russ, was one of my professors, um, one of Ben's professors at NBS, probably Jim probably had him too, a few of us uh, had Russ as a professor, but Russ was also an elder at my church when I came out, when I moved out here uh, to First Baptist University Place, uh, he was an elder at the church, um, and Linda was there, you know, as, as part of our church, their daughter, Jana, was Lindsay's roommate when I met her, so then I became her roommate after we got married, of course. Um, and so there's just a lot of family connections there. And yesterday was, was an emotional day on a different level because about 300 people showed up for this wedding, and you know most of them, and you're reconnecting with people and hearing about their lives and, and all that. And then there's just the emotion around losing this lady uh, from her battle with cancer was very difficult. In addition to all that, on Thursday, before the wedding rehearsal... Many of you know we have another family friend. Her name is Neva, and Neva's been uh, battling cancer since uh, for most of this year. Uh, She was diagnosed with brain cancer, and her husband, Brian, texted me on Thursday morning and said that Neva went to be with the Lord on Thursday morning. And so we had all of that, and then uh, last night after the funeral that we went to, then Brian came over to my house And we had dinner and we talked about Neva and talked about just some of the things that we're going to do with the service and what that was all related to. So all of those things were circling around. In the midst of all that, many of you know that Mark Cox lost his dad uh, just a few weeks ago. And and, uh, John was part of our uh, ministry team at University Place back in the day. So there's just been a lot of different emotions that have been going on, especially this last weekend. And the way that that leads us to the parable that we're going to talk about today is this. Jesus, in his parables, he told stories and used everyday life things to teach kingdom lessons. And we've seen that as we've talked about 10 parables so far. But today he's going to talk about one that's especially going to hit home because he's going to tell a story. And it's going to teach us about life and death. It's going to teach us about the afterlife and eternity. And it's an everyday thing that we deal with. But on, on a weekend like this weekend, when I've dealt with great celebration on one hand, and then large amounts of grief on the other hand, as I've been studying for this over the last week and a half, and then this week putting it together and like thinking through it, and then all this came to a culmination on Thursday, I thought, you know Jesus knows what he's talking about. Jesus knows what he's doing when he tells these stories and just takes stuff out of our everyday lives and and tells a story and teaches us kingdom lessons. So There's a kingdom lesson in here for us today in this story of the rich man and Lazarus. And it's a story about life and death. and It's a story about the afterlife and eternity. And I told the first service, you know, I, I like to come up here. I like things to be fun. I like things to, you know, I like us to laugh a little bit as we're walking through scripture. I think Jesus had a sense of humor. You're even going to see it today. There's a little sense of humor in here, but this is heavy stuff that we'll talk about today. This is life and death and eternity. This is like a heavy weight of burden today. So I want to start out by saying this, like everybody believes something about the afterlife. Think about that. Anyone who has ever lived or who lives now, Believe something about the afterlife You so say I'm an atheist I'm agnostic I have no interest in Jesus, God, the Bible Or anything religious I'm completely anti-religious I believe that I'm going to Live as much life as I can now Live the best life that I can right now Get as much fun as I can right now Because at the end of my life Whether it's tomorrow or 30 or 40 or 60 years from now I'm going to die They're going to put me in the ground Or they're going to incinerate my body And that's just going to be the end do you know what that's called? That's a belief system. It's called naturalism, right? That's a worldview. You ascribe to, you hold to a worldview. Someone says, well, I, I believe that, you know, we, uh, I believe in reincarnation, right? If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. That's incarnate, reincarnation. And we're just going to keep trying. That's a belief system. So he says, well, I believe like, we're not going to go to heaven or hell, but we're going to go to like this, the sin bin, right? We're going to go to the, the holding tank. That's, that's called purgatory. We're going to go there, and we're going to see. We'll work our way out, or somebody will pay our way out. Everybody believes something about the afterlife. The question for us today is, what does God's word say about the afterlife? Because as I told the first service, you don't want to get there and be surprised, Right? You don't want to get there and be, and be shocked. I said, I don't like surprises, but I'd rather have a surprise birthday party than this surprise. You know? Oh, there's no, nothing happens in the afterlife. And you wake up and you're like, it's really hot. Is there an air conditioner? That's not the surprise you want. Everybody believes something about the afterlife. At the end of the day, what does the Bible say? And then, what will I believe? Because we each will hold to something related to the afterlife. What does the Bible say? And my job is to open the scriptures and help us to understand not what I think about the afterlife, but I want everybody here today, wherever you are in your spiritual life and thought process and worldview, to at least be able to walk out and say, well, at least now I know what Jesus says about the afterlife. And then you can make an informed decision about what you'll do about that. If you have one of those Bibles that has like the words that Jesus actually said in red letters, these will be those red letter words. That means that this is Jesus' teaching about the afterlife, and that's important to know. So Luke 16, 19 through 31 is called the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Some people say, well, it's not a parable. There's a guy who's actually named in there. It actually starts out like this there was a rich man. And you remember a few of Jesus's other parables started out there was a rich man. So we believe that this is in fact another story, another parable that Jesus is telling. Nineteen through twenty-one will kind of set it up for us, and says there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he feasted sumptuously every day. This is a guy who was opulently wealthy. Okay. We're not just talking about the guy who, like, you know, made his money in a little bit of real estate. This is the guy who was opulently wealthy, and there's some indicators in the text to help us know. This guy was, if you're the generation, like a few generations before me, uh, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, right? Robin Leach, was that the guy's name? Right? Lifestyles of the Rich and Family. Now, if you're my generation, or right around that time, it was MTV Cribs. Remember MTV Cribs? Yes, we do. Okay? I don't know what it is for the new kids anymore, but whatever. The, the one percenters, right? This is that guy. You say, how do you know that? There was a rich man who was clothed in purple. And you've probably heard that purple was the most expensive type of uh, garment that you could wear. You wanted to show that you were royalty or that you were really, really rich. You wore purple. The reason for that is because like, they dyed their clothing. They dyed their fabric. And the way that you came up with purple was that there were these little snails that they would find. And they would harvest these little snails... And they would crush up the little snails And they would make a purple dye out of their shell And these things were hard to find And hard to process And it was a big, long, extravagant process To even get the dye And then to dye the garments And so it was very, very, very expensive In our day, this is, this is like the, the designer brand clothing The clothing that you see on the red carpet At the, all the award shows That's the purple in that day We wear brands, you see they wore brands as well Didn't they? And this guy was clothed in purple. And here's the sense of humor part. It says he was clothed in purple and fine linen. Well, they made a certain kind of garment out of fine linen. You know what it was? It was their underwear. You're like, you're making that up. I read like five or six commentaries just to make sure. And many of them agreed that they're talking about the guy's underwear. You're like, they can't talk about underwear in the Bible. I didn't write it. Jesus did. It's the words of Jesus right here. Now, not every time the Bible says fine linen, I get it. But many many actually commented... That in this text, Jesus is drawing a picture that is some, of someone who is so wealthy that not only their outerwear is fancy, but that their underwear is fancy too. Like all their things are fancy. I would submit to you, if the underwear is fancy, the person is wealthy. I'll just put that there. If you learn something today, maybe that's the thing. Don't tweet that. I don't want to know what kind of people show up at church when someone tweets that. That gets weird. But he was very rich. It also says that he feasted sumptuously every day. This is banquet feast every day. We'll learn that he lived on probably a large estate that was gated. We'll see that in just a moment. And so probably regularly, he he set out a great feast and had his rich friends come over and they would walk through the gate to his estate and they would come in and they had their rich royal robes as well and he had his rich royal robes on and they would eat together and feast together and this guy had it all. He had everything that you want, he had. The, the person that, that our culture is striving to be to go on the best vacations and to do the greatest things and have the greatest stock portfolio and the greatest bank accounts and and all of the different things that this guy had that. That's the picture that's supposed to be in our mind. And we'll also remember that in chapter uh, 16, verse 14, Jesus is telling this story to a group of people that included the Pharisees who were lovers of money. And those Pharisees are sitting out in that audience and they're listening and Jesus is talking about this rich man. And you'll remember, as I said before, that when they saw rich, they saw righteous. That for the Pharisees, for the religious leaders, to be rich meant that you had been blessed by God. So rich equaled righteous. So this rich man, in his culture, in his day, was seen as blessed by God. How else would he have gotten so wealthy, except for that he was blessed by God, according to the religious people in that day? So that's one man verse 20 and 21 we meet the other guy it says and at his gate was laid a poor man named lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table moreover even the dogs came and licked his sores you'll notice that this man that that probably other people picked him up it's passive there in the text and set him down at the gate as was the custom that he was probably crippled, that he had sores, maybe from not being able to move around uh, or other reasons, but he was a crippled man who was destitute poor, and he was placed at the gate of the rich man. You'll also notice not only was he covered with sores, he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. You see, every day probably rich people walked by this guy. He was laid at the gate so that this man in a, a patron client culture that the rich man would be his patron, that the rich man would take care of him. And that was almost expected in that day. Yet in this moment, he's still desiring to be fed. He's not being fed. He's not being cared for. There are indicators in the text as to what kind of person this rich man was. And the poor man's laying at the gate not being cared for. And it says even the dogs came and licked his sores. And you animal lovers are like, oh, see, it's so sweet. The little puppies came and they loved him and not even the rich man would take care of him but the dogs had compassion how many of you have been on a missions trip to a third-world country that has like dogs right I remember we went to Nicaragua for the first time with Lauren's parents man and and like I like dogs you know how I feel about cats but I like dogs and so like we see these dogs and I'm they're running around on the streets and I'm like oh, the poor things don't have any food let's give them some food and I went to do it and Adrian Mingo don't you dare like wait what like poor little Fido is over there and look at him he's so sad and he's so depleted and he said if you give them that dog food number one you're offending all these people who hardly have any food and number two that's a mongrel that's not somebody's pet right and you know that like in our day in our little culture like we love pets and we have the pets are people too and I'm a pet grandparent oh gosh don't start with me on that (laughs) right but in that day they were dirty this guy would have been considered unclean, like ceremonially unclean, defiled. That he was that poor, destitute. But not only that, because he was poor, he wasn't just poor and unfortunate, he was poor and unrighteous. In the sight of the religious people, he wasn't just poor and unfortunate. That's that's sad. He got that way for a reason. He's poor and he's unrighteous. Notice, though, that, and this is unique to this parable. Jesus never does this in all the other 30-odd parables that he teaches. He names the poor man. Some people think that this is actually an example story of something that actually happened because Jesus names this man. But we need to know Lazarus, Eleazar, Lazarus that here means God helps. Jesus names this man intentionally because what you're going to see as we walk through this is a great reversal where the values of the culture in that day, much like the values in the culture in this day, valued people for their wealth. Valued people for, and and people's identity came from their wealth. And if you were wealthy, you were important. And if you were poor, you were unimportant. And Jesus names the poor man, and he leaves the rich man with no name. The important, opulent rich man has no name, but the poor and destitute man is named Lazarus. God helps. And there's a point to be made here that our identity comes from the Lord, not from our stuff. It's not the main point of this parable, but it is a point that our identity comes from the Lord and not from our stuff. You see, as I've said, the theme of money and eternity runs through all of these stories that Jesus is telling in Luke 15 and 16. And we've looked at several of them, and it's all one big time where Jesus is together with this group of people, and this, the theme of money and eternity runs through all of these teachings because Jesus has said over and over again that one of the greatest indicators of your heart is your attitude toward possession. And, and where you're headed eternally isn't determined by how much money you have, but where you're headed eternally is determined by your heart, and your heart can be understood in, to a great extent by your money. So money and eternity are inextricably connected. This is not a sermon about money, but it's definitely there in the text. And I want to, to be clear. I've said this before, but we have new people each week. And I want to be clear um, and, and outline just real quickly, how does Jesus look at money? Like, how does Jesus see money in people? Because there's lots of, like, weird teaching about it and I didn't come up with this but I think it's really good I've said it before and so I'll give it to you again that there are essentially Jesus sees four kinds of people as it relates to, to our attitude toward money you have righteous rich people righteous rich people have been blessed by God they've worked hard they've gained their money in good ways in godly ways through hard work uh, through even if they've inherited it or things like that that they've they've received their money well and they use their money to serve God and other people That's the way you can tell a righteous rich person That they use their money to serve God and other people You have a righteous rich people You have then the unrighteous rich people Unrighteous rich people accumulate money through nefarious means Or even if they accumulate money through hard work and good means Their money is there to serve them And their stuff is there to serve them And to make them better and make their life better They will use people and use circumstances To make more money to care for themselves What we're dealing with in this text is an unrighteous rich man. On the other hand, you have righteous poor people. You can see examples, by the way, of all of these in Scripture, but you have righteous poor people, people who don't have a lot of money, but what they have they see as a gift from God. That rather than complaining and being frustrated and angry and always upset, they see whatever that God has given them as a gift from God to be used to serve God and other people You remember the widow's mite And her putting those coins into uh, the offering The last that she had Righteous poor people But there are also unrighteous poor people Who it's always somebody else's fault It's never their fault it's, They may be lazy But it's not their fault that they're lazy And the money that they don't have Is a reason for them to use other people And abuse other people And be mad and angry and upset what we have in this parable, Jesus is telling us a story of an unrighteous, the, the eternal fate of an unrighteous rich man and a righteous poor man. And I think that this is so, uh, such an opportune time and it's so applicable to our culture because our culture values wealth above so much We don't want to be Christians who are poverty theologians, right? The less money you have, the better off you are. Many have interpreted this text as that. That's not biblical. Prosperity theology says the more money you have, the more righteous you are. Not biblical. Poverty theology says the less money that you have and the more you suffer, the more righteous you are. Also not biblical. But what we do want to see is that the way that we approach these things has a lot to do with our eternity. And so Jesus is going to tell this story... About the eternal fate of an unrighteous rich man The eternal fate of a righteous poor man Along the way in verses 22 and following then He will give us four really important truths About our eternal destiny And I'll give you the first of those right now It's in verse 22 The first thing I want you to see is this That death is inevitable Death is inevitable, verse 22 It says the poor man died And it was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Some of your translations say Abraham's bosom. And it's for that reason um, that some uh, scholars think that what is... The reference here is to a, a banquet and if you're familiar in that day um, the tables were low and they would lean on one side and you'd almost lean against the person next to you and, and they think that, that it possibly the allusion here is to Abraham being seated in, in heaven being seated at the place of honor at a banquet table and this poor man being there right next to him at, at the right hand leaning on on Abraham and showing that, that now this man is at a place of blessing and it says, the poor man died, and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. One of the things that we know is for destitute poor people in that day, they often didn't even get a proper burial. They would place them in a, in a common grave uh, with lots of other people, and they didn't even get a proper burial. And so you can see that Jesus is telling this story, and he's saying that the angels actually came and took him uh, to heaven. We'll get into a little bit more of what that means in a few minutes. But then it says at the end of the verse, it says the rich man also died and was buried. So the poor man's died. He's carried by the angels to Abraham's side. We understand that to be heaven and the rich man died and he was buried. I want you to to understand the thing that we all know, that death does not discriminate, right? Someone's money may be able to buy them a few more years, but it's not going to buy them eternity all the working out and the eating right and doing all of those things that someone wants to do it might buy them a little bit more time it might buy them a little bit more time but death does not discriminate death is inevitable and all of us can think well I've got 30 more years or 40 more years I like to think you know I'm 44 years old I like to think of that as maybe almost half time right but I have no idea in the mix of all that I shared at the beginning of the service One of my former youth ministry colleagues A guy that's the same age as me We used to do youth ministry together They were having his funeral in Bremerton Because he got colon cancer And died My age Death is inevitable And death doesn't care how old you are And death doesn't care how rich you are And death doesn't care how cool you are And death doesn't care about any of that stuff The poor man and the rich man Both died And that's not the sad part the sad part comes at the end of verse 22, where it says that he, was, he died and was buried. Some of us think, well, that's it, right? That's the end. He had a great life, had a good run, gave it all he had, had a lot of enjoyment, he died, and then he was buried. End of story. Have a funeral, make a plaque, maybe he gets a statue, done. Hebrews 9:27 says it like this. It is appointed. Appointed means that someone is appointing it, that God is appointing it, that God is dictating it. It is appointed unto man, that's mankind, that's, that's, that's all of us, once to die. Just like each of us has a birthday, each of us has a divinely appointed death day. I told you it's a little heavy. But each of us has a divinely appointed death day. Hebrews says it's appointed unto man once to die. In our text in Luke 16, the first word of verse 23 is the word, and. The rich man was buried, and. In Hebrews 9, 27, it says it's appointed to the man wants to die, and. And most of you know this verse. Once to die, and after this, judgment. There's an after this judgment. In Jesus' parable, he's going to say, this is the after this. We believe that for everyone, there's a birthday and a death day, and that after the death day, there's the rest day. There is the afterlife, and that there will be judgment for all people. And for some, that judgment is when God looks at you, and instead of seeing you, sees the blood of Jesus Christ, because you've placed your faith in him, which we've celebrated today. And that your judgment is, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the words you want to hear. But the judgment for others is when people, when God looks at a person and he sees them without Jesus, without having placed their faith in Jesus. He says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And what's scary is that some of us think we're well done, thou good, and faithful, when in reality, we're the other side. Depart from me. And Jesus is even clearer about that in, in Matthew's gospel. It's appointed a man wants to die, and after this judgment. We'll see what that judgment looks like for this unrighteous man in verse 23. And in Hades. And in Hades. Verses 23 and following is going to tell us this that hell is real. I'll talk a little bit more about this word Hades in just a minute. But let me read this because I want you to see what Jesus is talking about. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able. And no one may cross from there to us. A few things about this as it relates to the doctrine of hell. I'll say first and foremost... The doctrine of hell is not a doctrine to be trifled with. It's also not a doctrine to be waved around as a flag as if we're somehow proud of it. I know that hellfire and brimstone preachers have tried to quite literally scare the hell out of people by, I think, misusing and abusing the doctrine of hell. No pastor who has a relationship with the Lord likes the doctrine of hell. I don't stand up here and take joy in talking about eternal punishment. That's not something that we look at people and say, ha, 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 you turn or burn. No one who really believes in hell is excited about it. But what we do is we open God's word and we say, what does God's word say? What does Jesus have to say? People say Jesus is the most, even non-Christians will say Jesus was the most loving person who ever lived. And I want you to remember that these are the words of Jesus about the afterlife. It's also important, we don't build an entire theology of the doctrine of hell on one parable. I'm not going to try to do that today. If we were going to do that, we would do a class, and we would walk through the Old Testament and the words for it there, and the New Testament and the two different words used for hell in the New Testament. We would talk about uh, Hades as, uh, as the word basically means, has several different meanings even in the New Testament. Um, and we'd, we would talk about what Hades means, and then we would talk about the idea of Gehenna as an eternal place of conscious punishment and what hell really looks like and build a theology on all that but i do want us to understand a little bit of an idea of what the afterlife like what what christians believe about the afterlife generally we think in terms of we think in terms of heaven and hell and that person went to heaven or maybe that person's going to hell the bible in fact is like more nuanced than that Ultimately, it's okay to say those things as long as we understand some more of, of what it means. And again, I won't lay it all out this morning. There's not near time for all of that. But we believe when somebody who's a Christian, when I went to the funeral yesterday, I believe that Linda Glessner, her, her body is here. It's going to be interred. I believe my friend Neva Topolsky, who passed away on Thursday, Her body currently is at the Haven of Rest Funeral Home in Gig Harbor, being prepared for the graveside service. But for both of those ladies who profess to be Christians, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be where? At home. I love that word, at home with the Lord. Wait, so this isn't home? Here, now, this, this body is not home? Thank you, Jesus, right? You wake up in the morning, you're like, I'm not home. It's okay, The absent from the body is present with the Lord. I believe that those ladies, as they've passed away, that their bodies are here, and that they, their souls, are at home with the Lord. They're awaiting what Revelation calls the resurrection of the dead. 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about other places. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about that resurrection, where they will then spend eternity with Jesus in a new heavens, a new earth, might I add. But that the, the fate, of non-believers as is outlined here that's the eternal fate of a believer the eternal fate of a non-believer and the New Testament uses primarily two terms Hades and Gehenna Hades and Gehenna to talk about the idea of hell and Hades again it's it originates in, in ancient Greek mythology Some of you are f- familiar with that And it's taken on different meanings through different times uh, Hades can mean just a, a, a basically a holding place uh, Where all people go But in texts like this It leads us to believe that Hades is actually a place Where the unrighteous people Unrighteous people when they die Their souls go to this place called Hades And it is in, in ways a, a temporary holding tank now, some people read a text like we're reading today. Uh, there's a belief system out there. Some, some of you may hold it. That's okay. That Hades is actually a temporary spot where we go and we await, like, uh, the end times that Revelation talks about. And we, we, we await the end times of resurrections, and Hades is kind of split in two. And you have good Hades where... where Christians go and await the Lord and then you have like the other side of Hades that is flame and torment and all of those things and that's why Abraham and Lazarus can see each other. So there's a a system out there that teaches that. I don't hold to that system. I believe that when Paul said to be absent from the bodies, be present with the Lord, he said that, that Christians, go to, their soul goes to be with the Lord. That non-Christians, as we see here, go to a place called Hades, which is hot, and we can think of that in terms of hell. Now, if you're reading especially an ESV Bible, but really any of our English translations, when you read the word hell in your Bible, it's usually translating a Greek word, Gehenna. And Gehenna is a transliteration of, of a place name in uh, scripture in the, in the New Testament And it's a place outside of Jerusalem It was a valley, the valley of Hinnom and, and one of the things that happened In that valley, some of you may know And the reason that the scriptures Talk about it in such a way Is that before the time of Jesus In that valley uh, People sacrificed, child sacrifices In that valley to their false gods Before the time, again Before the time of the Israelites and, and Jesus And those things, that child sacrifice Was done there And Jews believe that that was the most detestable kind of wicked that could be done. By the way, there are parallels with things that happened in the valley of Hinnom and what happens at Planned Parenthood up on the hill, okay? I'll just put it there and leave it there. But there was one of the most evil and wicked things that child sacrifice was done in that place. And because of that, then for all generations and all times, nothing good could happen in that valley you couldn't build in that valley you couldn't have sacred spots in that valley you couldn't live in that valley that that valley was good for nothing so you know what they'd made that valley they made it their trash dump and they took all of their garbage and all the things that would go in there some even say that that's where they put dead bodies of people maybe like lazarus would go there and you know what they did with all of that they incinerated it they set it all on fire And they say that the Israelite people could literally, you could go there at any time and there was a flame as as if it was an eternal flame in the valley of Hinnom. And that Gehenna, when Jesus talks about hell, he uses this term, Gehenna, it's just a transliteration of that place because it's a visual object lesson of what eternity would be like. And some of you are like, why is this guy saying all this stuff? Because God in his sovereignty gave them a place To look at every day To say that's the place of final judgment By the way in that place the worm never died The fire never went out Does that language sound familiar? It was a literal object lesson in front of them all the time When Jesus talks about hell I believe it's 13, 14 times Every time that you read in the ESV Bible Every time you read the word hell With the exception of Matthew 16, 18 It's it's Gehenna And that's what we think about When we think about eternal and conscious punishment But At the end of the day when Jesus is talking about these things Whether it's Hades as a a temporary place of punishment And then as Revelation says that death and Hades are given up And they're cast into the lake of fire I would submit to you that that's not the place that you want to be That that's not the eternity that you want to have That that is real and that is true But it's not the place that you want to be And in case you're wondering, you know, because one of the things that's happened, I think, in evangelical Christianity is that, like, hell is distasteful, right? Like, in case you're wondering, you're here today, and you're like, are these people, like, crazy? They like this stuff? Like, hell is distasteful. We don't like to talk about that. And so what some evangelical Christians have done, and certainly liberal Christians, is they've kind of softened it. Well, Death is, like, hell is, like, separation from God, Right? Hell just kind of means that you're separated from God Your friends aren't there It's not very nice, it's kind of dark And I'm like fire and dark I just like, you know But I want you to see that five times in this text Twice he uses torment Twice he uses anguish And once he uses the literal word flame That this isn't, isn't just like a quiet place Where there's no God This is a, a place of ton- conscious torment like hell in scripture is a literal place of anguish and torment and separation from god it is a place matthew 5 says it was created matthew 25 says it was created for satan and his angels it wasn't created for people but consequently as people sinned they became the place of their final destiny for people who don't place their faith in christ i won't turn to all of them for time but Matthew 25, 41, Revelation chapter 19, verse 20, Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, all call this a place of fire, a place of eternal fire. And I want you to know that hell is literal and the hell is real, and that the most loving thing that anybody can do is talk about what God says. Because if we hide it and we don't talk about it, or we soften it, then we miss it. And again, What I don't want anybody to be able to do is wake up one day and be like, wow, this is a real surprise. I was not expecting this, and it's a lot warmer than I thought. We don't want that. Verse 26 indicates that it's a place of permanence as well. He talks about a great chasm, and there's no crossing over and back and forth. And you need to know that Scripture makes it very clear. There's no purgatory. There's no holding tank. You might get out of it. that, that hell is permanent death is inevitable and hell is real look at verses 27 through 31 to see that scripture is sufficient and he verse 27 he is the rich man he said I beg you father talking to Abraham send him send Lazarus to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they almost co- also come to this place of torment. The rich man says, I now see, I can't get out of here. But what about my relatives? And I would submit to you that if hell is so bad that you don't even want your relatives to be with you, this is not a place to look forward to. This is not a place to joke around and say, yeah, I'm going to go to hell, but all my friends will be there, and it's going to be great. This guy says he's there, and he doesn't even want his closest family members there to endure what he's enduring. Verse 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures that pointed to Jesus. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham. If someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. Jesus said to him, or Abraham said, verse 31, said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced that someone should rise from the dead. And Jesus knows what he's talking about right there. Someone would rise from the dead. Here's what I need you to hear very clearly. That experience does not create faith. You have to know this. That experience does not create faith. People today want an experience. I need a miracle. I need someone to be healed. I need a word from God. I need a vision. I need a dream. I need all these things. Experiential Christianity is looking for an experience to give them faith. But experiences don't create faith. Faith comes from what? Hearing the Word of God. And I'm. Experiential Christianity scares me because there are people who are preaching and teaching this i've had people actually say like i don't need a bible i had a guy tell me i don't need a bible i don't i don't need the bible for my quiet time i go into my prayer closet and i shut the door and i close my eyes and jesus comes and he speaks to me audibly and we have this relationship that's heretical there's none of that in god's word And this rich man in Jesus' parable is like, send someone to my son. If they see somebody rise from the dead, if they see Lazarus come and he rose from the dead, that'll be enough of an experience for them to have faith. And Jesus says, even if they see somebody rise from the dead, they're not going to have faith. And I wish I had the time to turn to him, uh, but we don't. In John 11, we meet a real man named Lazarus. You know what happened, right? Right? Lazarus was one of Jesus's good buddies, and he dies, and he's in the grave for four days. And he, Jesus is going to open the tomb, and, and Jesus is going to call him out. And one of his sisters is like, "But he stinketh, Lord King James. He stinketh." And Jesus calls Lazarus out, and he raises, and people see him, and it's just a stone's throw from Jerusalem in Bethany. And he's actually been resuscitated, brought back from the dead. And you think now everybody's going to believe in Jesus. And the text says in John 11, starting in verse 45 and following, it says that some actually did believe in Jesus by seeing that. But then when the religious leaders saw it, in effect they said, man, this is really bad PR for us, and the Romans are going to come and take everything from us, and there's too much on the line. And the high priest, Caiaphas, actually said, you know what's better is if one guy die for a good cause than if everybody loses everything. And they sought to kill and ultimately did kill Jesus. One rising from the dead, in fact, did not convince them. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus himself Dies and rises again The tomb is empty The religious leaders come And they look and the tomb is empty And they say what are we going to do now This is going to go sideways And they actually have to bribe the Roman guards To say that the body was stolen Rather than admitting that, God, that Jesus is God and Lord and Savior and King and Christ Rather than falling down and worshipping him as who he is They would rather lie and say that the body was stolen Because experience doesn't create faith Spiritual experience alone creates feelings, not faith. And feelings don't save people. Faith saves people. Faith comes from the word of God. At the end of the day, if scripture is sufficient, then here's the last piece in verse 30. If scripture really is sufficient, verse 30 says that repentance is then required. He said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. And what I want to point out to you is this. That even the rich man finally came to a point where he realized he needed repentance. Repentance is in the text on purpose. As Jesus tells this story, the rich man is already in Hades. He's already in hell. There's not a way for him to get out. And at this point, he realizes that people need repentance. Repentance is we return away from ourself and we turn away from our sin and we turn toward Jesus. Jesus. And I want you to know that there will come a time when everybody will realize their need for repentance. But like this rich man, for some, that realization will come too late. See that in the text? All of his wealth and all of his opulence and all the things that he had blinded him from his eternal need. He didn't even realize his need for repentance until it was too late. And that's the great danger for so many of us. Because scripture is clear that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, and some will bow in repentance and receive God's grace, and some will bow in subjection and receive God's judgment. And I would submit to you that you want to bow in humility and receive repentance, then bow in subjection and receive God's ultimate judgment, which we have just heard about. So the call today is clear. The call is a call to repentance. If you've not placed your faith in Christ... I would plead with you this morning that in a minute as I pray, that you just simply pray, God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus is who he says he is and he died for my sins and I confess him as my Savior and Lord. Become a Christian today. Place your faith in Jesus. And if you are a Christian, who's that person that needs to be prayed for? Who's that person who needs Jesus? Who's that person who needs you to share with them, invite them to church? Pray for whoever that person is. And finally this, I believe that scripture is sufficient. If you're here today and you're not a Christian and you're like thinking about things of the Lord, I honestly, I'm glad that you're here. You're always welcome here. We want to help people explore faith in Christ. My goal isn't to get people to pray a prayer. My goal is to help people understand a relationship with Jesus. There's a Bible on the back, uh, on the, the table right back there, the Connect table. There's several copies of it. It's called How to Find God. And it's a copy of the New Testament. And it's just got some things to help you read and think through um, if you have questions related to this. In addition to that, I'm always very happy to help people walk through that. Uh, I may not have all the answers, but I can help you search and journey. We want people to know Jesus. We want people to love Jesus. We want people to repent of their sins and follow Jesus. I'm going to ask you to pray with me this morning toward that end. Father, it's been a good day to be in your house, to reflect on all that we've reflected on. God, as we've paid tribute to Memorial Day, and all that that means as we've commemorated the Lord's Supper. God, the the price that Christ paid, the reason I can stand here and share this message. God, as we've sang these words to these songs, that are so gospel-centered. And as we've opened your word and been confronted with the afterlife, been confronted with the reality of of life that's going to happen after death, I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would provide conviction right now. You know how this message needs to be applied to people's hearts, and I pray that you would do that in this moment, in the moments as we leave, um, as we go throughout the day and this week. And I just pray that you would continue to challenge, challenge us. Um, God, for that person who's here who has questions, um, that they'd pick up a Bible, start to read it, start to think about what you have. And God, for those of us who believe and, and place our faith in you, You give us opportunities every day to reach other people and I just pray that you would continue to to lay that on our heart and challenge us in Jesus' name.